Hello, and welcome to episode 72 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week, oh my gosh, I am just so excited for my story this week. So excited I can that tell. I told mom that I wanted to choose the beverage this week. I know. I, I, said, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't have to think on that one. <laughs> I am doing the true crime and the beverage this week, and mom is doing the paranormal. And I have a surprise oh, for you. Boy. This is going to be a great episode. I can feel it. <laughs> okay. Get so I texted mom and I said, when we record, pour yourself a bourbon and seven up. And I said, I could do that any day of the week. Okay. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. And then she was like, what does that have to do with Washington and Oregon? And I said, you'll find out. Okay. So I am drinking my bourbon and my diet seven up and that's about all there is to it yeah <laughs> I know we've done the seven and seven with the Seagram seven before exactly but this is any kind of bourbon mixed with seven up over ice bing bang boom mom's drinking by herself again <laughs> so cheers mama cheers to a great episode we have ahead of us cheers all right I'm going to sit back, drink this, and listen to you. And that's exactly what all of you can do. You get to sit back and take a break. Your emotions will not be heightened with this story. You will not cry with this story. It's just a truly fascinating true crime. Okay, <clears throat> let me get into my storyteller voice. Our story starts... On a rainy, cold day. Oh, don't you love it when it starts like that? I know. That? I thought of you <laughs> when it really did start like that. I was like, she would have loved to tell this story. <laughs> the year, 1971. The day, Wednesday, November 24th. The day before Thanksgiving. Which I thought about you because most of the time you cover these stories too about Thanksgiving time. Well, dang, I should just pick this one up. <laughs> oh, you're going to wish you had. The place, Portland, Oregon, specifically PDX, the Portland International Airport. Ooh. A man in his mid-40s, dressed for the time, think very Mad Men-esque, walked up to the Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter to purchase his ticket. He had on what was described as a rosette-colored suit, which is kind of like a brown-purplish-colored suit, which... Okay. Yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> a crisp white collared shirt, a skinny tie with a mother of pearl tie clip, a hat, a rain-like weather overcoat, and brown shoes. He carried with him a briefcase and a small brown paper bag. He was average looking, I guess you could say. He had dark wavy hair, somewhat of an olive complexion. Least to say our main character of the story is no Don Draper. He just kind of blended in to the times. So he walks up to the ticket counter and purchases a one-way ticket on flight 305 to Seattle, Washington. He pays his $20 fare in cash. <laughs> $20? Those were the days, my friends. He fills out his ticket voucher in a red ink pen. 
you know, no ideas checked or baggage checked. <laughs> it's the 70s. But he writes his name in bold block letters. Dan Cooper. If you haven't caught on already, I am going to share with you all the mysterious skyjacking story of D.B. Cooper. The only unsolved airline hijacking in FBI, actually, in United States history. Unsolved? Wow. Mom, you don't know who D.B. Cooper is? No, I, I hate to show my ignorance. Wow! You are in for a story. So like I mentioned before, the year is 1971, and skyjacking wasn't actually a rare thing. Actually, according to the podcast Stuff You Should Know, on their episode of this story, they said that in 1968 to 1979, it was actually known as the golden age of skyjacking. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> From 1968 to when D.B. Cooper plane jacked his plane, so in three years, there had actually been 100 commercial hijackings. Oh, my gosh. Like I said, it's the 70s, I guess. It was no big thing to bring guns and bombs onto planes. <laughs> you didn't need an ID. You just got on board, lit your cigarette, and had yourself a cocktail. Oh, yeah? And that's exactly what Dan Cooper does. He boards Flight 305, a Boeing 727, finds his seat, which was 18C, lit his Raleigh brand cigarette, and ordered a bourbon and 7-Up. <laughs> from the flight attendant Florence Schaffner. Now, the plane is a smaller plane. There were 36 other passengers on the flight with a crew of five people, the pilot, the co-pilot, and three flight attendants. The head attendant was Alice Hancock, and the other two were Tina Mucklau and Florence Schaffner. So Florence brings Dan Cooper his bourbon and seven up. He thanks her and hands her a handwritten note. She takes the note and slips it into her front apron pocket. She's a pretty girl. She's 23, young, and being a flight attendant back then was, well, I honestly just picture Catch Me If You Can. They were kind of like, you know, <laughs> a big deal. <laughs> and she's probably really used to these businessmen writing her little notes and handing her right, inappropriate right. notes, I'm sure. So she's really thinking nothing of it. And Mr. Cooper says, well, um, excuse me, miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I just think uh, it's so funny because at first he's being really sly and slick by handing her this note. But then he's <laughs> real sneaky. But then, and then out loud, like, he's like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a bomb. <laughs> Just a heads up. This is definitely a story we can giggle at. Like I mentioned at the beginning, it is not one of our normal tragic tales we've told before. We're having a little bit of a break this week. <laughs> All right. Okay. So first he's subtle and then he's not. <laughs> so <laughs> she reads the note. And I don't actually know what the note says because nobody actually knows what the note says because after she reads it, he takes it back from her, <laughs> which is smart. Probably says, probably says, I have a bomb, <laughs> which is smart because now they can't trace him for any handwriting samples or anything. And remember mm -hmm. on his ticket voucher, he wrote in all capital block letters. Block. So right. even that they don't have a sample from. But he asks Florence to come sit next to him. And from this point on, if he wants to communicate anything to the pilots about the hijacking, he has one of the flight attendants 
be like a messenger. You know, they they have to write it down. He tells them what to write down or, you know, what to do. Mm -hmm. So he never had any direct communication with the pilots. It was just going through the flight attendants. So he has her sit next to him and she's like, how do I know you really have a bomb? Because even though skyjacking was a thing, it was actually pretty normal for those skyjackers to be these like crazy guys that would just like all of a sudden stand up with a big gun and like, oh, I'm going to take over the plane. But Dan Cooper is like real slick and he's real quiet. Mm -hmm. So she's sitting next to him and he opens his briefcase ever so slightly. And in the briefcase, she sees a few red sticks attached to some wires and a large battery looking thing. So she's like, okay, I'm all ears. What do you want? So he has her write out his demands to the pilots. He wants $200,000 by 5 o'clock in a knapsack in all $20 bills. He wants four parachutes, a fuel truck ready to fuel up the plane when they land in Seattle, and, quote, no funny stuff or I'll do the job, unquote. I just love the lingo. No funny stuff. (laughs) I didn't think that was that weird. Okay. (laughs) so from this demand he's smart in asking for four parachutes because that's suggesting that he's going to have a hostage jumping with him so they can't mess around with the parachutes they can't you know falter cut or anything to the Mm, parachutes mm -hmm. because he's obviously going to be putting an innocent life in jeopardy so Mm -hmm. she takes this note of demands to the pilots they call to the seattle airport who calls the local police who's like uh We don't know how to handle this stuff. So they call the FBI. She heads back to Cooper to tell him that she delivered his demands. And now he has, as she comes back, now he has these like dark framed, dark sunglasses on. (laughs) And this is the famous sketch. Those who know who D.B. Cooper is. This is the famous sketch that you would have seen of D.B. Cooper. There's one without the sunglasses and one with these dark rimmed sunglasses. He looks like he's like Joe Cool now. The FBI starts to get everything together from his demands down on the ground while the plane is flying. And it's really interesting, but they found this local bank in Seattle that has this little plot for like if bank robbers and like if bank robbers came into their bank. Mm -hmm. So they have all these bills in these random stacks. So if a robber comes in, it looks like the bank teller just ran in the back and quickly put together a bunch of stacks of bills. When in reality, these were pre-made stacks. And the bill's serial numbers were all taken record of. So mm-hmm. the FBI grabs a few of these stacks of money. And actually, the podcast I mentioned before, Stuff You Should Know, they really did a great job researching and covering this case. If you want to dive deeper and hear more like little tidbits like that, I definitely suggest you give them a listen. It was a fantastic podcast episode. So... The money part was easy for the FBI to get together, but the parachute part was a little tricky. So while they're down there running around finding things for their demands, Flight 305 is basically in the Seattle area. So the FBI is on the ground running around trying to find parachutes and everything. And they ask the pilots to just circle around up there while they grab what they need. (laughs) So the people on board, they have no idea they've been hijacked. The pilot just like actually intercoms back there and he's like, let's see if I can do my pilot voice. This is your pilot speaking. We are having some mechanical issues with the aircraft. So we're going to circle around up here in the air and burn off some fuel 
<laughs> Does that sound legit to you at all? We're having mechanical <laughs> issues, so we're going to keep flying? <laughs> no. You'd think that that would cause a panic, but again, it's the 70s, and they're like, heck yeah, pour me another cocktail. Like, <laughs> exactly. Do I get another drink? All right. Light a cigarette, have another drink. No big deal. Chill. Cooper even ordered himself another bourbon in 7-Up. So the plane's just circling around, and he has the other flight attendant, Tina McClow, sit down next to him. I think she is definitely the hero of this story. So right. she's sitting next to him. She actually spent a lot of time with him. She said later that he was very soft-spoken. He was very calm. They chatted about her hometown, chatted about the local Air Force base in the Seattle area. And even at one point, while he was looking out the window, he pointed and said, quote, Huh, it looks like we're over Tacoma, unquote. So... We'll chat about it a little later, but that kind of leads you to consider that he's a local. Yeah, he knows. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he knows, he knows the, area. the area. Tina asked him at some point, do you have a grudge against the airline, sir? And he responded, no, just a grudge. Back on the ground, they have the money and they work at finding the parachutes. And they're having a hard time because I guess parachuting wasn't exactly a hobby yet. So they found this place that could provide parachutes and they hurried and they grabbed four. And I don't know if it was because, like I said, people didn't know a lot about parachutes then or what. But they grabbed two good parachutes, one military parachute, which it's different than a regular parachute. It has a shorter, like, pull thingy to open the parachute so and you can't steer it once you open it so oh, it's it's okay. tougher to use a military parachute and the fourth parachute was a dummy chute which i still don't know exactly what that is but basically from my understanding when they're training or teaching parachuting they don't want to pull the cord and have this huge parachute come out and then they have to fold it all back up and start it all over again for the next lesson sure so it's sewed the parachute is like sewed in there and these are marked with a huge big X so people understand, like, you can't jump with these. It's not going to open. It will not save your life. But that's the one they grabbed. Yeah, they grabbed two good shoots, one military shoot, and a dummy shoot. <laughs> Whoopsies. So brave Tina is sitting next to Cooper. And as the plane makes the descent, he actually has her pull all the shades in the airplane down. This was another smart thing. Like, this isn't his first rodeo. He's just plain smart. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> uh, anyway, he has them pulled in case there are any snipers when they land. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there were. Mm -hmm. So the plane lands at the Seattle International Airport at 5.39 p.m. Before the passengers are allowed to get off the plane... Which, again, uh, did they not realize that they were, like, in a hostage situation? Obviously not. <laughs> They're just still enjoying their cocktails, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for cocktails. But before the other passengers can get off the plane, Cooper sends Tina out to the FBI and all the police that are gathered there on the floor. On the floor. <laughs> on the ground. The termac. And like to go out and grab the knapsack of money, the parachutes, and make sure that they can fuel up and, you know, head on their way. And this is why I think she's a hero, because she gets off the plane and she could have easily run away. She could have easily gotten out of that situation, but 
She gets all her stuff, all the stuff that he asked for, and she gets back on the plane. Wow. But while she's out there with the FBI getting everything, the FAA had hired this psychiatrist. And he's like, okay, Tina, listen here. This is what's going to happen. I need you to go and tell the pilots in there that this is what's going to happen. I can read this guy. And he's (laughs) going to make you jump out the back of the airplane with him. And then he's going to blow up the plane. So uh, go on in there. Go tell the crew. Go on. (laughs) So again, she's brave. She didn't run away. She went back on there. Jeez. And she has the chutes and the money and the passengers, you know, get off the plane, probably stumble off the plane at this point. (laughs) And when they open the door, there's this big fog Fog of smoke. smoke Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Wow. Why are all the police here? (laughs) So Cooper actually gets rid of the other flight attendants as well. So now you just have the two pilots and Tina and Cooper on the plane. Oh, okay. And as the plane is refueling, Tina and Cooper are sitting next to one another, and he actually offers her a stack of money. Now, this is great. Her response, quote, no tipping allowed, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) She must have built a relationship with this guy. But also been scared out of her mind because he's being so chill, and and it did mess with her. In the end, after all of this, it, it really did mess with her. I think she actually went off and became a nun after this and just, really? yeah, she was really scared after this. And so I guess we can't laugh at that, but it's pretty clever of her. No tipping allowed. So Cooper is very specific about the flight they are about to take. He wants to fly to Mexico City and he wants to do so with the back door to the plane open and the back staircase extended as they fly. Now, that's another thing to note. He knew that the Boeing 727 had that back door and the back staircase. Not all planes have that. I think it's like the only, if not one of few, that did. Hmm. And the pilots are like, uh, we can't take off with the door open. But you can open the doors and let the stairs down while we're in the air. Cooper's like, okay. And Mexico City's really far away. This is a smaller aircraft. We're going to need to have to stop and refuel. Cooper's like, he's like, I was just giving you a destination to fly south. Just make sure you fly south. I'm going to jump eventually. So I just have to point out here too, like, so up till now, we're like, man, this guy is chill. He's all 007 with his dark sunglasses. But this makes you wonder about his plan because is there a plan? Because he's basically saying, just fly somewhere south. I'm going to be jumping. Mm-hmm. So did he have like a place that he knew he was going to be jumping into? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's November out in the Cascade Mountain area. Like it's cold. What is mm. this guy's plan? But then he's smart again because his other demands were that they are to fly no higher than 10,000 feet. And then they have to fly at 115 miles an hour. So basically the cabin wouldn't pressurize so he could open the door and jump out. okay. And his other request was that the wing flaps were at 15 degrees, which is another thing that only a Boeing 727 could do. So was he a pilot? Did he work for the airlines? Like he knew about this plane. He knew how fast it needed to go, how high it needed to fly for him to jump. So 
it's just it's just interesting it makes you think so they take off and oh yeah i forgot another thing that the fbi didn't adhere to his request for the money to be put in a knapsack that's what he wanted so he could put it on his back and jump and jump mm-hmm. they actually gave him all two hundred thousand dollars in a bank bag like one of those flimsy bags you see in the movies. I just pictured this like big dollar sign painted on it. <laughs> so he's like, how the heck am I supposed to jump with this? And he decides to cut up one of the parachutes and use the rope to tie the money bag to himself. And this is where you start to scratch your head. Remember, he has two good shoots, a military shoot and a dummy shoot. He cuts up one of the good shoots. <laughs> if not the best of all four of them, to tie the money bag to himself. He chose the military chute to jump with, which, like I said, you can't really steer that one. Did he know that? Had he jumped with a military chute before, so he was comfortable with Mm -hmm. that one? Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, you're jumping into the mountains, though. Wouldn't you want to be able to steer it away from trees and... Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. So he's using the military shoot for himself, used one of the good shoots to cut up to tie the money to him. And then as a backup shoot, he chose the dummy shoot. (laughs) Okay, he was really smart up until now. So now you're really like, man, this is some 007 crap. And now you're like, uh, so (laughs) they're flying in the air. They're flying south. And Cooper asks Tina to come with him to the back of the plane. So that he can open the back door and get ready to jump. And she's, like I said, she's spooked. That psychiatrist like really scared her, telling her you're going to have to jump with him. He's going to blow up the plane. And, you know, like what if he pulls her off the plane with him when he jumps? Like she doesn't, she's really scared. So she actually says, can I use some rope from the other chute that you're leaving here to tie myself to the interior of the plane so that I don't fall out of the plane? Mm -hmm. And he just responds, never mind (laughs) and I'm just picturing this guy like strapped with this big bag of money (laughs) he's got a he's holding the parachute he's got one ready to jump and he's like can you help me open this back door just uh, uh, I'll do it myself whatever Uh. I'll do it myself (laughs) stop your complaining (laughs) just do it myself he sends her back to the cockpit and tells her to close the first class curtain behind him and that is the last time anyone saw dan cooper so tina is in the cockpit with the pilots and at 742 a light goes on in the cockpit basically telling them that a door had opened some time passes and they're like okay and remember that guy said that he was going to blow up the plane. So they're like, right. oh my gosh, is are we about to die? They're terrified. They have no idea what's going to happen. Of course. And they're like, uh, Tina, why don't you call back there? So Tina gets on. The, <laughs> I just picture Tina gets on the intercom. Hello, your flight attendant speaking. I just want to make sure that your sky hijacking is as comfortable as possible. <laughs> is there anything I can get for you? They really want that five-star review. Cooper responds, no. At 8.12, the crew feels the plane jolt a little, like someone had jumped off. Mm-hmm. And the pilot mm-hmm. says, hey, Tina, why don't you go check? <laughs> oh, my gosh. The manliest of men. So she goes and looks, and Dan Cooper is nowhere to be seen. On the ground, a manhunt is beginning. Now, the FBI... 
I'm sorry, but this is pretty comical. But they had sent some fighter jets to shadow the Boeing 727. So Mm -hmm. when he jumped, they had a location, you know. Uh Well, Cooper's plane was flying at 115 miles an hour. I don't know exactly how fast fighter jets fly, but they're fighter jets. I can imagine them just whizzing by. (laughs) (laughs) And as the Stuff You Should Know podcast said, it's basically a Goldilocks story because they also send out some helicopters and the helicopters are too slow. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So since no one saw him jump, they use that 8-12 time. When the plane Mm -hmm. moved to kind of make an assessment as to where the jump zone was, they combed the area. They had helicopters flying overhead. I mean, they're just searching everywhere for this man. From what I understand, there was over 1,000 men searching the area for Dan Cooper. Okay, so the big question. I mean, obviously not the biggest question from the story, but one you may be asking yourself. Why the name D.B. Cooper? His name was Dan Cooper. But everyone except mom, knows him as (laughs) D.B. Cooper. Well, apparently during a press conference, a reporter had overheard the name incorrectly from some police chatting. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got the scoop. And he prints it as D.B. (laughs) What does he say? He's got the scoop. Yeah, I got the scoop. Don't you picture like a with the hat and you got the anyway like an old school reporter he probably had a cocktail in his hand too and he's like (laughs) i got the scoop (laughs) a cigarette hanging out of his mouth (laughs) he prints it as db cooper and the police choose not to correct that because that way if a tip or a lead came in about a dan cooper they knew it was probably a good tip nice all right and lots of leads did come in in 1972 so in the year after cooper's plane jacking Letters were sent to the FBI through the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the Seattle Times, either confessing, eulogizing Cooper, and claims to be his brother. FBI had men on the ground hounding all the Coopers of the area, knocking on doors of all the Coopers in the area. But besides the name Dan Cooper, they really didn't have anything else to go on. They did discover a weird little connection to the name Dan Cooper. Dan Cooper was a name of a comic book character in a Belgian comic book. Mm. The character, Dan Cooper, was a Canadian jet pilot who jumped from planes. Hmm. That was some little rink-a-dink comic book. It really wasn't well known, but it was something. Now, because Tina had spent so much time with them... They really do believe that the sketch I mentioned before is pretty dang accurate. We'll post the sketches. There is, like I said, one with sunglasses and another without the sunglasses. But he didn't leave any fingerprints. Again, though, it's the 70s, so I don't really know how much you can look into fingerprints back then. There was no handwriting samples. Uh, He had jumped out with all of his belongings, the briefcase and everything, that bomb. Oh, the briefcase, too. That he had showed her. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, this was the greatest deception to me of it all, but he left his tie on the plane with the mother of Pearl tie clip. The mother of Pearl clip was fake, and the tie was a clip-on. <laughs> the 007 visual for me is just Does. out the window. <laughs> it was a JCPenney clip-on tie. <laughs> now, I can't be for sure because, you know, <laughs> resources, but... I don't know if it was from the cigarettes 
or from something they discovered on the tie, but the FBI did find some source of DNA of Cooper's. Oh. That they tested against a couple of the suspects that I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get into just a few of them, but that they could test against different suspects. Gotcha. So mm-hmm. they did get some DNA. The FBI have made it pretty clear that they believe that Cooper died in the jump. It was a rainy, cold, icky night. He jumped into a wooded area that was around negative seven degrees that night. It was very cloudy with little to no moonlight. And there was tons of theories on the web, of course. One being he was eaten by Sasquatch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, But no body was found. No parachute has been found. Nothing until 1978. So basically seven years after the skyjacking, some hunters in Oregon were out in the woods. They discovered this plastic instruction thingy showing them how to, and the instructions showed how to lower the back staircase of a Boeing 727. Oh. They call the police, who again are like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. (laughs) So they call the FBI. And now this is cool that they found it, but it was on the flight path. They knew that. It could have fallen out at any point in time. Oh, sure. It really didn't mean anything. It was just really cool to find. And it did strike up some more interest in the case, though. Okay. Yeah. Then in 1980, a family is camping out on Tina Bar on the Columbia River. And eight-year-old Brian Ingram is digging a fire pit when, lo and behold, he discovers stacks of money. In that one spot. Holy smokes. $5,880 in $20 bills, to be exact. He calls his dad over, who's like, uh, wow, <laughs> we should call the police. Which I'm like, wow. What? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe I'm a bad person, but if my son found $5,880. Buried in the sand? <laughs> I'd probably still call the police. But so he calls the police. And what do you think the police say? Uh, oh, we don't really know I what to, know do, what with to that. do. So they call the FBI. Oh, and holy cow, the serial numbers match DB Cooper's Crazy. cash. As a reward, the FBI lets little Brian Ingram keep $3,000 worth of the cash for himself. And a fun little tidbit for you in 2008, Brian sold that cash on eBay for $37,000. Oh, my gosh. That smart kid. He held on to it for that long. That's D.B. Cooper. Most people know who that is. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so finding this cash was cool. But what had the FBI scratching their heads was the location. It wasn't on the flight path. And it was actually like 20 miles south of where they had assumed he had jumped on a totally different river area. There are some possibilities of all of this. I guess in 1974, the Columbia River flooded. So maybe it came from a totally different area. And during the flooding, it got washed up there on the Tina Bar. And in 1977, the river was dredged. So maybe it came from that as well. Mm-hmm. Originally, Cooper, if found and brought into custody, would be charged with air piracy. Yes, that is a thing. But that has a five-year statute of limitations on it. Oh, so over time, they had to change that. If he was captured, he would be charged with violating the Hobbs Act, 
which is a federal statute designed to prevent extortion. This has no statute of limitations, meaning if you bring grandpa in because he's D.B. Cooper and he is D.B. Cooper, he will be charged. <laughs> gotcha. So no matter when you bring him in, if you bring him in today or tomorrow, he's going to be charged. But the FBI has called off their investigation at this time. Mm -hmm. it, it's just interesting because it seemed so meticulously planned and then he jumps. You know, everything leading up to it was so meticulously planned. And then he jumps with the wrong shoot. He doesn't have a location that he's planning to jump to. He, no planned meetup point. You know, the, the pilot chose the flight path. He didn't. Oh, that's so true. That's true. It's, it's just everything's meticulously planned until he jumps. There are a few suspects. We don't know exactly how many because the FBI haven't released how many that they've interviewed or how many was on the list or how many they've tinkered down to on the list. But I wanted to share a few of my favorites. Richard McCoy was a big suspect for a time. In February 1972, so four months after Cooper's skyjacking, he skyjacked another Boeing 727. He also requested four parachutes. He was calm, collected. He had passed a note to the flight attendant about a bomb mm -hmm. using the exact same phrase, quote unquote, no funny stuff. He asked for $500,000, which to me makes sense. If you got away with 200000 why, <laughs> why not, not do it with 500000 right. Yeah, there's a lot of work to go through. <laughs> I'm going to get more money out of it this time. He even looked a bit like the sketches. But he was 29, which was younger than Cooper was perceived to be. Mm -hmm. McCoy was arrested and taken to prison, uh, where he actually made a fake gun from dental plaster and stole a truck and escaped. <laughs> he just crashed through the front gate of the prison and was eventually killed in a shootout. Later on, his family claimed, though, that McCoy was at Thanksgiving dinner that year in 1971. So most likely was Couldn't not done it. Dan right. Cooper. Dwayne Weber was a career criminal. I guess he and his alias did time in prison. His alias? So he was he was prison. That's prison. when you know you are a career criminal. <laughs> when even your alias gets... Behind <laughs> bars. Listen to this. On his deathbed, he told his wife he had a confession he needed to make to her. I am Dan Cooper. His wife was like, who's that? <laughs> like you. <laughs> who's that? He gets pissed and the two get into a fight on his deathbed. <laughs> he died a few days later. After he died, she was like, hmm look into this dan cooper fella and she really thinks he was telling the truth really she remembered that on a car trip that she and her husband took in 1979 Dwayne stopped the car and pointed off the road and told her quote that's where db cooper walked out of the woods unquote <laughs> she still said who <laughs> <laughs> another instance on that trip again they were driving and while on a bridge over the Columbia River, remember, that's where the money was found mm -hmm. on the Columbia River. Dwayne stopped the car, parked it, got out, walked to the trunk, pulled something out, and then left his wife in the car on the bridge for a good 10 minutes. He finally came back, got back in the car, and then just kept driving. 
Talk about good communication. <laughs> well, yeah, she never asked a question, so I guess it was. If Alex left me in the car on a bridge. Do you really think I'd, I'd just let him get back in the car and not be like, what the heck are you doing? <laughs> well, maybe he, she did. And he just, I had to go potty. I had to go. I don't know. I was looking for Dan Cooper's money. Who's that? <laughs> Why do you keep talking about him? <sighs> the FBI said Dwayne was not D.B. Cooper. He had been ruled out because of DNA. Oh, darn. Another death confession of being D.B. Cooper came from Kenny Christensen, kind of. Okay, so his brother Lyle actually called the FBI and turned him in as a suspect. But his brother Lyle is kind of an oddball. He also hired a private investigator to get in touch with Nora Ephron. Oh. (laughs) You know, writer of one of our favorites, Sleepless in Seattle. He wanted to get in touch with her to write a movie or something about his brother being D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Okay. But things did kind of add up. Kenny looked a lot like the sketches. He had worked for Northwest Orient Airlines. He lived in the area where all this happened. Uh-huh. He had been a former paratrooper. Oh. And he also drank bourbon. <laughs> oh, boy, that nails it right there. The FBI actually showed his photo to Florence, the one of the flight mm-hmm. attendants. Mm-hmm. And she responded, quote, I think you may be onto something here, unquote. Oh. On his deathbed, Kenny told his brother Lyle, I have something really important to tell you, but I'm not sure if I can. And Lyle responded, no, no, it's okay. I don't know if I want to hear it. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh my gosh. A deathbed confession? I'd be like, dish, dish, dish. What do you want to tell me? No, it's okay. You can trust me. Honestly, (laughs) tell me. I want to know it all. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. There are other... I mean, clearly, nobody's been arrested. Nobody's been charged. Nobody... I'm sure police have followed in... Or not the police. (laughs) The FBI. (laughs) (laughs) They've followed into everything. But... I mean, there are so many other suspects. One that even read and enjoyed the Belgian comic I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. He like had it in his room. But obviously, because the case is unsolved, all leads have led nowhere. There was a History Channel series on all of this. And this guy, Thomas Colbert, he led a private investigation into the case with like a 40 man team, a lot of them being retired FBI and they were thoroughly convinced D.B. Cooper was a man named Robert Rackstraw. He was a Vietnam vet. He had been a special forces paratrooper, was an explosives expert and pilot. He'd had classified units in the war, may have even worked for the CIA. Apparently, he had outed himself in secret code in the letters I mentioned before that Cooper had sent to all the newspapers. Mm-hmm. He was a suspect to the FBI, but had been eliminated. Some think because he had worked for the CIA, the FBI had eliminated him. It was interesting because, like, one of the men working with Colbert on this was a former Army security agent who decoded signals during the Vietnam War and had been Rackstraw's superior in three different units. So he, quote unquote, knew Rackstraw's method of coding, uh-huh. and he used this to discover the hidden codes in the letters sent in the newspapers. 
that basically spelled out that D.B. Cooper was Robert Rackstraw. Rackstraw, of course, denied this, and the FBI have not res- they've not reopened the case. But this whole documentary is basically about how Rackstraw is Cooper. But to sum it all up, Dan Cooper is basically one of the main reasons why there are metal detectors before you're flied. They now check IDs because skyjacking was kind of a big thing. And that is the story of Dan or D.B. Cooper. Oh, that was interesting. Nope, never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. I was alive during that time, too, but I was in Germany and I was nine years old. So hmm. <laughs> I just can't believe that there's a golden age of skyjacking. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy that in just three years there was a hundred. That is that's insane. No, it is. It is. I wonder if they had as many flights. I mean, if they had even less flights than they have today, that's really remarkable. Things were so bad that they were wanting to put air marshals on every single flight, but... <laughs> That's a lot of hiring that they would have to do to put an air marshal on every single flight. Oh, I just think that story is so interesting because nobody knows who he is. There is a theory that the show Mad Men, which I loved, that Don Draper would go on to be D.B. Cooper. Oh, (laughs) jeez. I love it. So I had to kind of throw that little tidbit in there. So anyway, I learned you something. You learned me something. Yeah, you did, kid. All right. My turn, my turn, my turn. Your turn, your turn, your turn. Okay. I was really excited to find Bellingham, Washington on the list of hauntings in Washington. Because, you know, my sister lives there and we go like every summer to go visit them. So there's actually quite a few little places in Bellingham that are haunted, supposedly. Really? Now I want to take a ghost tour, of course. Of, say that again because of, <laughs> of course of <laughs> course i said of course are you being are you being the uh the press you got a scoop <laughs> now i want to go on the ghost tour of course of course you do <laughs> so i can investigate myself but anyway so the place that i chose was the mount baker theater which was The building that drew my attention for many reasons, but I've passed the building actually several times in the past. I've never thought about going in there, but pictures of the interior. Wow, I've really missed out. So next trip, (laughs) I'm going to check it out. The theater was built in 1927 by Fox Film Corporations, which actually built several similar theaters around the country. And they picked like four different themes for the theater there's like a Asian theme and a African theme so so they designed the whole theater in these themes oh cool that's really neat the one in Bellingham the interior was built with a Spanish Moorish theme so a lot of Spanish artwork it seats 1517 people uh, so it's not a tiny theater and The decor is just absolutely stunning. The most eye-catching is the plaster dome and chandelier, which hung over the seating. It's huge. The dome is 80 feet in diameter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the chandelier, just the chandelier, weighs 600 pounds. (laughs) So (laughs) looking at the pictures, I immediately go to 
Phantom of the Opera with a chandelier. <laughs> with the chandelier. Down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in actuality, the chandelier is lowered once a year and is given a good cleaning. Only once a year. Oh, man. Only once a year. But <laughs> listen to this. This is just a bit bit of trivia that I picked up. It takes 15 minutes to lower the chandelier. Then it takes an hour to crank it back up. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's 600 pounds. It's Jeez. 600 pounds. And it is a crank. It's this, you know, with big, big fat cables. And you literally hand crank this thing up. Oh, wow. So and then if you go behind the scenes, sort of, you see all these hundreds, hundreds of uh, metal cords that are actually holding up the dome and the chandelier. So that nothing crashes on their That's 1,017 <laughs> guests. Which uh, I found was a very 1, odd number. 1,517. Oh, yes. What an odd number, though. 1,517. <laughs> Can you not lower it two or I increase mean, it by three? <laughs> it bothers me it's not an even number. Like, <laughs> Sorry. OCD. Okay. The theater became a national historic landmark in 1978. And in 1984, a partnership between the city... The county and the community saved the building from demolition. Demolition. Uh, now, the theater is operated as a city-owned facility managed by the nonprofit Mount Baker Theater Corporation. The theater has professional live productions, concerts, community theater productions, art festivals, and movies. Fun. Yeah, which is not far from what the original theater hosted which was live productions and concerts. A screen to watch the silent movies was added later. Cool. The, init the initial acts were vaudeville acts, which was the favorite entertainment of the time. <laughs> but, of course, that was replaced by all the talkies or the, the silent films. Okay, and this is my segue into the paranormal activity at the theater. I'll start with your favorite. Why would there be a cat at the theater? But this is a bigger cat. I don't know if that makes any difference. The theater is supposedly haunted by a black panther. Why? So there, there are a few stories as to how this animal <laughs> even came and how and now haunts the theater. I was, I was not expecting a panther at a the big theater. Panther. Yep. So supposedly it was used in the vaudeville acts and was kept in the basement and died of, quote, natural causes. Oh, now, I don't know. I feel bad for that then. Yeah. It's different than a house cat. Quote, natural causes. I find that funny and sad because natural causes, uh, maybe because the animal is kept in a dark kept basement. A dark, I mean. And probably in a know. tiny cage. I don't it's know. so sad. The other story is that the cat actually attacked a man and was shot and killed. Um, another is that in the late 1930s, a traveling circus performed at the theater, and the Black Panther that they used in their act somehow died on stage. Oh my gosh, all of these are terrible stories. Oh, for the panther, yeah. So yeah. whatever the reason, a large black spirit resembling a big cat has been seen in the wings of the stage, as well as at the bottom of the stairs backstage. A growl has been reported by actors on stage and by That's people like really scary and by people closing the theater at night. 
Like I mean, it's one thing to see wah. a ghost, but then just to hear. Well, I think it's gonna be bigger than that. Meow. <laughs> 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 so, um, there's a story of an usher who was leading a tour around the facility. And he took the guests to the basement. Now, this is where the panther was supposed to have been kept. And when he opened the door to a room, there was a loud growl heard. Ugh. And a flower pot randomly tipped over in the direction of the tour and shattered. Oh, my gosh. Needless to say, they did not go into that room. <laughs> and <laughs> I think the usher refuses to lead any more tours after that. I think that's what they said. So oh, I don't blame man. him. According to some paranormal investigators, I thought this was interesting. Animals do not really appear as ghosts, per se, but rather as energy residues that jump out when encountered. I disagree with this. I totally disagree with this. And I, yeah. will, I will show you why. I want you to now open the two pictures I sent you. Oh, okay. Okay, before you, before you absolutely, tell me right before you open them. So these photos were sent by our friend Mike Palmer from Pink, uh, Paranormal Investigators of Northern Kentucky, who we've talked about before, of course. And he sent this just for you. It's a for present. <laughs> it's a present from him. He said it was taken in the basement of a coffee shop in Covington, Kentucky. All right, now you can open it. Okay. Look at the dark one first. In the lower right corner is a dark shape. It's not a spot on the floor. No. They checked it. It looks like it has a white paw. I was going to say there's a little white. Now go to go to the second picture because they lightened it. Oh, that's a cat! <laughs> there had been sightings of a phantom cat in the basement. You can oh. act. You can you could see that's a cat. Ew. It's a black cat with a white paw. She the one lady's even kind of looking in that general direction like she heard something. Oh, that is terrifying. Now that's not residue. That is a spirit of an animal. Yeah. I mean you can I'll ask Mike if we can put those on our uh on our website, but he wanted me to give that to you as a gift. Oh, well, thank you, Mike. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think I'd rather deal with a ghost panther than a ghost house cat. Sheds <laughs> everywhere. and I don't think the ghost cat sheds. <laughs> gosh. All right. Okay, that was couldn't wait for that part to happen <laughs> so that was just a little side note you wanted to throw in there now i'm all creeped out Blech. of course the panther is not the only spirit in the theater the building is also said to be haunted by judy according to history judy worked at the brothel that was located where the theater is now um so the brothel was torn down and the theater built okay she contracted an illness and died in her room at the brothel, so the story goes. Judy is said to play tricks, especially on men, go figure, <laughs> but nothing mean. She's a nice ghost. <laughs> Just a trickster. Just a little trickster. Just a trickster. Then there is what some paranormal investigators have pointed out as a portal on one side of the stage. Oh, hopefully nobody so, falls in. <laughs> so, supposedly, there are three spirits that, quote, live in the building. Judy, Jeffrey, 
a tall, well-dressed spirit who has been seen dressed in either a fancy pinstripe suit or a tuxedo. As long as he's not in a clip-on tie. (laughs) And of course, the panther spirit. (laughs) Random. But because of the portal, any number of ghosts can be at attendance at a given time. It just depends on what show they're showing that night. No, exactly. <laughs> As these spirits can travel into and back out of this portal at their own uh, will. They're showing the Phantom again this week. We'll, we'll come back next week. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there have been several unexplained things that have happened at the theater, and it doesn't even have to be nighttime that these things happen. Well... And that makes sense because the theater has no windows. So it's always yeah, dark. I mean, it's always you know, dark. Right. Just saying. Well, don't you think really haunted places are still going to be haunted even in the light? I totally agree with that. Why yeah. would the ghosts take, do they sleep during the day? I mean, Again, I don't think so. It's not like they come out of the portal. They come out of their holes. And it's like, is it nighttime yet? <laughs> you know Synchronize what I mean? our watches. We're meeting at nighttime. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't I've al- I've always said that. Why? I mean, like all these investigators, ghost adventures and stuff. They they always go at nighttime. But maybe it. You're I think more it's a spook factor. I guess to it at nighttime. Maybe there or... is more activity around, like that three a.m. Maybe there is proof that that really or is the more active time. The other thing, I think Lisa or somebody from Pink told me this. Um, at nighttime, there's less activity outside. Mm-hmm. So, so it's easier less to really listen. Sure. Um, sure. And then there's, you know, the light coming in might mess with the photographs and that kind of stuff. So maybe. Because I know not- when I had my experiences, I've had them both during the day and the night. And night. Right. I, I can't believe that spirits are only around at night. No. Right. Right. Not just at night. Moving on. <laughs> a former office that had been turned into a storage area. In that office, there was a safe, which had mysteriously closed. Now, nobody had the combination to the safe, so obviously it stayed closed. After many years, the room was being cleared out for renovation, and papa, they found the safe and it was open. Ooh! Yeah. Panthers picking locks. There's a story of a house manager closing the theater for the night. So he was the last person in the theater... He also happened to be the first person to come to the theater the next morning. When he opened the door, he found a table had been moved to the other side of the room. (laughs) So he checked the alarm, and the alarm showed that no users beside himself were registered on the alarm. So how had the table moved? That's odd. It's a table. Yeah. It has legs. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. (laughs) (laughs) Another usher who had arrived hours before an event was to start went up a narrow staircase to the room that held the usher's uniforms. After retrieving the uniform, he went to go back down the steps, but was stopped by 10 usher vests lying on the stairs. (laughs) They weren't there before. They wanted him to have a little fashion show. That's the show the ghosts wanted to see. They all came through the portal to see a little fashion show. That or the heck with one usher. We need 10 or 11 ushers. Yeah, we need more (laughs) ushers. I don't know. (laughs) As I said, these little tricks 
were all experienced by men, but that doesn't leave women totally out of the experience. Kristen Costanza, former associate director of development. Love the last name. Yes. Thanks, Steinfeld. Had her own experience and it happened on her orientation tour. She was with the person showing her around and they came to a storage area. This is where the concessions were stored and there were soda six packs stacked on top of each other. Okay, so picture that. Okay. They turned to look at something and when they turned back around, now this is a matter of seconds. They turned back around and there was a soda can which had been taken out of the plastic ring and it was sitting on top of the stack. Which is not easy to do. I hate. It takes I more than a few so seconds. Much to it takes take me about Gatorade a minute or two. Out of a, out of a plastic ring. Oh wow! They didn't hear anything, and it took a matter of seconds. And then this can was sitting on top of the stack. Wow! Is that they crazy? Were thirsty. Yeah. I thought that was crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's what she said. Oh, we just thought Judy was probably thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted a soda. <laughs> Along with these experiences, there have been countless pictures of orbs. Specks of light and blurs appear in pictures. I'll try to post one or two of these on our site. Many people have felt cold chills and feel like they're being watched. Needless to say, I will be going to the Mount Baker Theater when I visit Bellingham. You should take some pictures when you go. That's awesome. Yeah, and hopefully I'll return with some personal stories to share with our listeners. Hopefully. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought it was fun. A panther. That is just so random to me. (laughs) Is that our first, like, well, I mean, we've done dogs and cats, but besides dogs and cats, is that our first, like, animal haunting? I think so. Oh, you mean big animal? Yeah, uh, besides like a domesticated like dog and a cat. I think, didn't I talk about a panther also on the uh, triangle, the Bridgewater mm-hmm. Triangle? I had talked about uh, uh, there was also a panther in that one. Maybe you did. I did. That's weird. <laughs> That's weird then. I don't but, know. They all kind of start to blend together, Mom. We're on episode <laughs> 72. <laughs> I don't even know what episode <laughs> that was. <laughs> well... This was a light week this week. Nothing heavy. It was a good start to everybody's week. A good start to their day whenever you listen to this. Maybe it's a good end to your day. Nothing sad on this episode. No. It was fun. So next week, I am going to do a true crime from Nevada. And I will be doing a paranormal from Nevada. (laughs) (laughs) All righty then. (laughs) just letting you know yeah like mom said we'll be posting pictures on our website killerhangoverpodcast.com as well as all of the resources from this episode like i said if you want to hear more about db cooper i definitely recommend listening to that stuff you should know podcast they really go into depth on the case it's very interesting I'll put a link to that in our resources as well. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We post a lot of fun pictures there and pictures from the case there as well. If you guys can take the time, we really do appreciate more reviews. It's been a while since I've requested that. It just pushes us up in the ranking and in the yeah, looking it helps, up of podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and we'd love more, uh, more of a hangover crowd. <laughs> there you go. All right, sweetheart. Okay, mom, virtual cheers to your bourbon and 7-Up. It is very tasty. Cheers, sweetheart. Cheers. I love you, kid. <laughs>